there's a, a Dharma cartoon of an old Zen master sitting in front of a room like this saying, the road to enlightenment is long and arduous, which is why I asked you to bring a bag lunch and a change of clothes. <laughs> and I think already today you can get a picture of just how long and arduous and how many bag lunches we're going to need on this journey. And it points to the, the challenge, really, of awakening and all of the obstacles and difficulties and resistance that we'll meet. And so on a retreat like this, we offer uh, just uh, an immense amount of instruction and guidance and inspiration and stories and whatever we can to encourage you to just keep going. We take the refuges and the precepts each day as a way of reaffirming our commitment and kind of setting the container of the retreat so that we can have some sense of community and safety. We do the sitting and walking practices in order to calm the mind and raise our energy, bring them into balance. This evening we're going to begin chanting the metta or loving-kindness practice as a way of opening the heart and raising some energy so we can practice later in the day. The silence is a powerful a practice in itself, just keeping silent, just kind of containing our energy. And there are just innumerable practices and techniques that we'll be offering throughout the retreat. And in part it points to just how many places we can get entangled and confused and bewildered and obstructed in our efforts to realize our aspiration. Tonight I want to speak about an additional practice. Actually, it's four practices, really. And one thing you may have noticed today in your practice is how much thinking we do. You know, we try to pay attention to the breath or our walking practice, and we just find ourselves lost in thought time and time again. And sometimes for whatever reason, we begin to think that thinking is the enemy of practice, and it's not. Tonight I want to offer you some thinking practices as a way of supporting your development of mindfulness, deepening of insight, and uh, awakening. And these four practices, or these four reflections, these four topics of thought are called the four protective reflections because they protect our aspiration, they protect our effort, they protect the momentum of our practice, they protect us from our own conditioned difficulties. And so they can be very powerful uh, reflections as an antidote or as antidotes to the conditions which we will inevitably confront and meet and have to deal with or learn to deal with in the coming days of the retreat. And these four reflections are called the Buddhanusati, which is the reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha, Metta, 
bhavana, which is the development of loving-kindness, asubha-bhavana, which is the contemplation of the unbeautiful, and marana-sati, which is a reflection on death. So I want to speak about each of these topics as topics for reflection. And I want to speak about them as a way of a practice, because they are each, they each address specific experiences and conditions, difficulties that we meet along the way, when we lose faith or we lose energy or we feel bored or we're just overcome with uh, self-judgment. These practices are very precise in confronting or dealing with that kind of obstructive tendency. So they can be important meditators' tools, really, in your meditators' toolbox. The first protective reflection is reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha. Of course, some of you know the story of the Bodhisattva and some of the life story of the Buddha. But the Buddha is one who is awake. And sometimes we get this kind of a, a mythical image of a Buddha as some kind of supernatural uh, something that we could never even approximate or come close to. But the qualities of mind that a Buddha has perfected are qualities of mind that we're all very familiar with. Generosity, loving-kindness, patience, determination, truthfulness, balance of mind. These are not foreign to us. We, we know what these qualities of mind are. We have these qualities of mind to a degree. We find them appropriate at different times in our life. But a Buddha is a human being who has so developed these qualities of mind that they have become the default setting of his mind, where that's the first response in every situation, to be loving, to be patient, to be generous, to, be, uh, to have a balanced mind, to be truthful. And we can see that even though we may know these qualities of mind, and we may experience these qualities of mind, they may be far from our default setting. Not yet brought to that state of, or that degree of fulfillment or perfection or ever-presentness that an awakened being has done. So when we talk about the qualities of the Buddha, loving-kindness and truthfulness. They're, they're the most obvious. But there's another quality. There's one of these qualities, and they're called the ten paramis, the ten perfections, or the ten purifications of mind, or the ten forces of purity in the mind, these perfections. And there's one that we don't talk about so much, and it is not so readily identified as one of the awakened qualities, and that is what in the Pali language, or the Buddha's language, is called aditana, 
or usually translated as something like determination or resoluteness of mind. Now, it is said that eons and eons and life cycles and just gazillions of years ago, there was an ascetic practicing in India named Sumedha. And one day on his alms round into the village, he saw that the village was preparing for some sort of ceremony. When he inquired what was happening, he was told that the Buddha of that day, Dipankara Buddha, was coming to this village. And so he got excited or interested and had never seen, had never met a Buddha, and he wanted to be there when the Buddha came. So he prepared a part of the pathway that Dipankara Buddha would walk on. And when Dipankara Buddha came past the spot that he had prepared, he was so struck by just the qualities that he could see in this, in this being. He himself had perfected his own concentration and understanding and his, the purity of his mind so that he could see quite clearly. And it is said that if he had received a single teaching of Dipankara Buddha, he would have become enlightened, fully enlightened. But when he saw the radiance and the purity and the power and just the, the gloriousness of a Buddha's mind, he felt within him this urge or this aspiration to become a Buddha in order to help others to be free of suffering. It just was so moved that he felt this arise in himself. And Dipankara Buddha, with the Buddha's mind's capacity, recognized that this ascetic in front of him had made this aspiration, did a quick scan of the uh, karmic record, and saw that, uh, indeed, he had all the qualities to become a Buddha if he wanted to undertake that path. So he confirmed to this ascetic that, indeed, in some future lifetime, he would become a Buddha. Now, this set the ascetic ascetic Sumedha on the bodhisattva path, whereupon he now had to perfect all these qualities of awakened mind. And it's said that he undertook hundreds of lifetimes, putting himself in the most challenging situations in order to develop patience, loving-kindness, balance of mind, generosity. And when you read some of the stories of the bodhisattva, he was challenged. And yet, after hundreds of lifetimes, he was born as a prince, Siddhartha, in India 2,500 years ago, undertook his practice, and became the Buddha. Realized deeply the nature of things, and awoke to the deepest truth. Now, imagine, if you will, for a minute, somewhere in your past you made this rash decision. I'd like to become enlightened. You know, and now you've got it. You, you have to do it. You know, it's like your, it's your karmic path ahead of you. And you just meet all these challenges over and over again. There's just all kinds of problems, challenges that get in the way. It's really easy to lose your faith, to lose your inspiration, to lose your energy, to feel unworthy, to to just meet all kinds of difficulties. And yet, 
one of the qualities that is developed in practice is this steadfastness of mind, this resoluteness of mind, this capacity to remember the direction you're going and take the next step. And this quality of steadfastness, this quality of commitment, is not a grim determination, it's just striving to get to some goal, but rather it's, it's like our Dharma compass, where in, as often as we can remember, we, take a, a, we do a scan of which direction is the Dharma pointing me now? Which direction should I go? What, what should I do in this situation? What is the dharmic thing to do? Which action or which behavior or which practice is going to lead me on to, towards the fulfillment of my aspiration? And a Buddha is one who has the capacity to remember in every moment the direction of the dharma, the direction of the truth, the, the direction of... Uh, freedom, and that's when we when we think of what challenges the Bodhisattva must have faced when we are faced with our own pain and fear and self-judgment and insecurity and laziness and tiredness and I'd rather be going to the movie and <laughs> and we just recall we just reflect on now the Bodhisattva probably was faced with the same thing. Should I go watch the show tonight, or should I go practice? And no doubt he made the wrong choice many times, but eventually perfected this quality of mind, was able to keep his commitment to his aspiration. When we think of even coming to a retreat, like a nine-day retreat, we say, oh, well, I'm, I've made a decision to go, I'm, I'm committed to go, but already you've seen that moment of commitment is pretty easily challenged by pain, fear, uh, heat, uh, sleepiness, restlessness. A commitment even to be here for a week in practice is a is a it's not a static thing it's alive it's a it's a dynamic process that's going on in the mind and each time we're asked or challenged or recommit to being here, to practicing with integrity, to undertake, to keep the silence, to whatever it is, then we're, we're feeding that, we're nurturing that, we're, we're developing this quality of mind, this steadfastness, this resoluteness, and this commitment. Years ago when we were doing our first month-long retreat on Maui, there was one woman who came to the retreat and during the time of the retreat she was celebrating her 20th anniversary of being in AA, where she'd been not, not drinking alcohol for 20 years. And for those of you who know the, the disease of alcoholism, it's not easy. It's a challenge. 
And I said to her, wow, 20-year commitment. Um, must be getting easier by now. And she said, you know, I can't really say that it is. But it's just one day at a time. I mean, that's their one day at a time. You just, you keep making the commitment, maybe several times in a day, to keep going in that direction. And we get the opportunity here, time and time again, to come back to the practice, come back to the breath, keep it simple, you know, keep the silence, keep the continuity of our practice going in all of our activities and behavior. I used to hike when I was younger with this kind of mind where I would put my mind at the end of the hike and then I would go get it with my body. And it's just like nothing. I mean, it's nothing could stand in the way because my mind was at the top of the mountain or was at the end of the trail. And now the body just had to go through the whatever it was to get there. And often in practice, we do the same thing. We put our mind, at, hopefully in the present moment, but sometimes we put it at the end of the sitting. And then we just endure. Or we do what we have to do to get through that period of practice. I've seen the same thing recently in our decision. Kamala and my partner and I, who live on Maui, a few years ago we bought a piece of land to create a, a small Dharma sanctuary and hermitage. And it's amazing. In It takes about five seconds to imagine, wouldn't it be nice to have a Dharma sanctuary here? Well, it's been about six years now, and <laughs> we're still on the way. And innumerable challenges, as you know, just all kinds of things come up to confront the commitment to keep going. And I've now realized that when people ask me, how's it going with some particular difficulty or challenge, I say, well, I'm not pessimistic and I'm not optimistic but I'm willing to take the next step. And I think that that's a really, a realistic way to practice. I'm not optimistic and I'm not pessimistic, I'm just realistic. Being willing to just do the next sitting, do the next walking, do the next. And so sometimes reflecting on this quality of the Buddha can really support you when you feel mm, wavering commitment to your own aspiration. It's not that anybody's forcing you to be here. No one's forcing you to do anything. But it's your own commitment. And if you practice with integrity, if you, if you try to fulfill your commitment with sincere practice, then you can, you, you'll really feel good about your, your practice. And if you waver in your commitment, then it's, it's challenging. It's hard to feel good about your practice. So let the, let the Buddha be a source of inspiration, really, for you. And know that whatever you're facing in your practice today, no matter how painful or how restless or how sleepy or how, li- how bored or how confused you are, about 90% of the other people in the room are also feeling this. And uh, 
the Buddha has shown the way that even though that's what you face, you can get to the end of the path. You can wake up. You can make this kind of determination or resoluteness the default setting in your own mind. So we have the reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha as one skillful thought, skillful thinking to support your practice. The second reflection, and it's really a practice that we often teach on retreat, is the development of loving-kindness or metta, metta bhavana, bringing forth or uh, loving-kindness in the mind. And it is a practice. It can be done more or less of the time, depending on your own interest. But inevitably, in the path of awakening, we meet challenging conditions. We meet sometimes a lot of pain in the body, sometimes a lot of self-judgment, sometimes we feel isolated, alienated, or alone. Sometimes we feel a lot of fear. And metta, or loving-kindness, is the practice for minimizing, or kind of making it possible to be with those kinds of experience for dealing with fear, for dealing with self-judgment, for dealing with anger, uh, particularly any kind of aversion. Metta is the antidote. Metta, as you know, is the development of loving-kindness, development of patience, of tolerance, forbearance, really. And learning how to love oneself. And maybe if that's all we learn, that's all we need to learn, is how to really love ourselves wisely, whatever we're experiencing. There are, as you know, Sharon has written a wonderful book on practice of loving-kindness and has taught probably most of you loving-kindness. So I'm not going to try to uh, (laughs) supplement it very much. But um, there often arises this question, does metta really work? Does it work for you? Does it work for the other person? Does the other person get it? Um, when When you send love to others, when you try to be tolerant and accepting, and I want to just um, share an experience, kind of like a personal test testimony about the practice of metta. I was in Burma in 1988. I was in the monastery there. And I was practicing insight practice. And I'd been practicing for a few years at that point. And then in 1988, there was a huge political uprising in Burma. And for a while, it looked like there were going to be elections, free elections in Burma, and that there was a good chance there was going to be a, uh, some sort of democratically elected leader. The, the old Nguyen, the old dictator, had decided to step down. And so there was just this tremendous exuberance and excitement and just, just a, a flowering of uh, 
faith and hope and uh, happiness in Burma. And the whole country was just uh, celebrating, really, the possibility of getting rid of this dictator. And for six weeks, the country was just shut down because people were so, it's like a big party. Uh, people were agitating to get elections. And then there was some incident where the police and part of the military were humiliated by some of the um, peace and democracy, pro-democracy marchers. And overnight, they reacted and they retook control of the country brutally. And some hundreds or thousands of people disappeared and there were just very oppressive and repressive um, conditions imposed. Any group of four or more people could be shot. I mean, you couldn't meet with more than three other people, or if you, two other people, or you were in danger of being shot. It was just, it was just overnight, the whole country went from exuberance to just fear, paranoia, tremendous rage and anger. It was just very upsetting to everyone. And even though I was in the monastery, you could hear it outside the monastery walls. People who came into the monastery would tell us about what was going on. And so it became quite difficult to practice mindfulness or to practice uh, insight then. So I asked my teacher if I could practice metta or loving kindness because I felt so, I felt a lot of anger and rage and disappointment and frustration and fear. And I thought metta would be a good practice. So I started doing metta practice. And after, you know how you go through the individuals, yourself and benefactor, and, and then you get to some groups. And at one point, my teacher asked me, he said, well, <clears throat> are you practicing metta for the generals who took over? And I said, huh? What? Why, why should I? What? No, I, I'm, I'm not. You know, <laughs> I was uh, not particularly happy with them. And he said, you know, the generals who took over and imposed this martial law, they too want to be happy. But because of their ignorance and they just their delusion and confusion, they actually believe that what they're doing will make them happy. You know, they just can't see that that's not the way to be happy. So he said, they really need metta. So I said, okay. So I'll, I started practicing, trying to practice metta for these generals. And I had the list of the generals that were appointed to da-da-da-da. You know? And there was a dozen or 15 of them. And it was really difficult because as soon as I tried to call them up to mind and, and pervade metta, all I could see was the badness that they'd done. It was really hard to see the goodness. And so it took, it took weeks before I could finally hold them in my mind, bring them into my heart, and really sincerely wish them to be happy and not have that feeling or that intention overwhelmed by my anger and irritation and frustration and disappointment with them. So I got to the point where I could practice metta and for them and others, and that was good. A few months after they had taken over, Aung San Suu Kyi, the, who has since that time won the Nobel Peace Prize, she was really popular in speaking out against the military. And they were, the military didn't want her around, so they tried to get her out of the country. So they passed this, or they didn't pass, they just said, all foreigners have to leave the country. 
her husband was English and he would have to leave the country and they figured that if he left, she'd leave with him. So they said, all foreigners have to leave the country and that included me. And I didn't, I was, I was in the monastery, I was a monk, I didn't want to leave, I, I wasn't bothering anybody, I wasn't a political agitator, I didn't do anything. So I didn't want to leave, but we got notified, you know, that all foreigners had to leave the country by the end of October. And this was just a couple of weeks away. So I wrote this letter. I said, I, I, to, I found that the Ufomia was the general who'd been appointed the uh, Department of Home and Religious Affairs. So I wrote this letter and I told him who I was, what I was doing, that I was practicing uh, uh, meditation in the Mahasi Yekta and that I really didn't want to leave and I was a good boy and I wasn't being politically active or anything like that and that I'd like to stay. So then I had it translated into Burmese and I had it handwritten by one of the monks in the monastery and then I thought I was just going to go downtown and give it to him. But there was martial law and you couldn't leave the monastery and you couldn't go anywhere. It was all there were roadblocks on all the roads. So I was kind of frustrated and stymied in my attempt to get the letter to him. So I was asking everybody in the monastery, do you know how I can get this letter to Fomian, General Fomian? Do you, know, do you know anybody? So I was in my room one night and this woman came to my door who was the um, dietitian in the dining room where I used to eat. And she was an older woman and she said, uh, oh, I heard you have a letter for General Fomian. And I said, yes, I do. Um, I'd like to stay in the country. But, you know, they passed this edict that says everybody has to leave. And she said, well, I know uh, General Fomian. Uh, my niece married his son and I'm going to have dinner with them tonight. So she said, if you give me the letter, I'll take it to him. So I said, great. She came back the next day and she said, uh, I had dinner with General Fomian last night. He said, you can stay. He said, just go through the normal application and I'll see that your visa application is approved. Come the end of October, I got a visa and every other foreigner in Burma had to leave. That metta works. <laughs> you know it works. Or at least I do. So... If you're ever having difficulty with anyone, yourself or anyone else, you know, that metta is a good practice. Okay. So, we have reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha as a way of supporting our own efforts towards realizing our aspiration, loving kindness to really deal with all forms of aversion and, and self-judgment. The third protective reflection is called a suba bhavana and a suba bhavana means to develop the perception of the unbeautiful now this is not a common practice here in the west but let me um, apologize if I offend you um, I've been cautioned about speaking about a suba practice by some of my colleagues not today, but in the past. And, uh, but you know, as they say, uh, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. So <laughs> I want to apologize if I say anything that offends you or confuses you or disgusts you. Well, I didn't, I, <laughs> I don't mean to. This is a, this is a, this is a practice that the Buddha taught, really. Okay. <clears throat> One of the challenges to 
really developing stillness of mind is our infatuated adoration of our body, how it looks, how it feels, how it behaves, and other people's bodies, and how they look, and how they feel, and how they behave. And we end up with endless fantasies and schemes and strategies and whatnot in order to seek the pleasure that we've all experienced within our own body. And so it's a big hindrance, it's a big um, distraction from the calmness of mind that's necessary for letting go and for deepening our insight. So this practice is a practice designed to help minimize the distraction of indulging in fantasies of sensual pleasure. So what does a suba mean? Well, let's take suba. Suba means beautiful, radiant, uh, lustrous. Um, get the picture? And in our society, what that means is young, smooth, energetic, tan, ener- <laughs> and that's the, that's the ideal in our culture. Well, a suba is not that. It's the unbeautiful, it's the unlustrous, it's the effects of gravity as we age, <laughs> if you want to be specific. So, and there are, I mean, there's a lot of beauty in the body, of course. There's a lot of beauty in, in the sensual world in which we live. It's just, it's just radiant. And yet if we indulge excessively in the beauty and the radiance and the loveliness of the sensual world, we get pretty distracted. And so, as a way of kind of dampening that, the practice of a suba, a suba practice, is to arouse in the mind the perception of the unbeautiful aspect of the sensual world, of the body, so that we can dampen the kind of the indulgence. We're not trying to deny, dismiss, denigrate, destroy, hurt, damage the body or anyone else in any way. All we're trying to do is arouse kind of a coolness towards sensual indulgence so that we can actually calm the mind down, so that we can have a more realistic perception of what happiness is possible through sensual indulgence and what happiness is not. And if we're blind, if we blindly indulge in uh, pursuing sensual pleasures, the mind does not calm down, the mind does not open up, and we do not learn how to disentangle ourselves from the sources of unhappiness. So the Buddha offered a super practice. Now, one way of practicing a suba practice is to reflect on what are called the 32 parts of the body. Well, 
the first five of them are hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and bones, I guess. Something like that. Mostly when we get, when our eyes get attracted to someone else, we look, we look. You know, and then we start noticing what we like about them, their hair and their color and their size and their shape and, you know, the placement of things. And, and we, we can get pretty caught up in, okay, one other, this practice is to take that part of the body and just put it on a platter over here and just look at it, unconnected to the whole body, just kind of, you know, like hair of the head. If you took all the hair of the head and you put it, or just one hair off their head and put it in your soup, uh, not so attractive, is it? Right? Well, that's. But see, it arouses the a kind of a balanced perception of what we are so kind of lost in fantasizing about. Well, when I first ordained as a as a monk, the first thing you do is you get your head shaved, and I probably had hair about like this and. My teacher said, when you're getting your head shaved in order to become a monk, I want you to think of hair of the head as one of the 32 parts of the body. I said, okay. Went across the street, squatted down, somebody lathered up my head, they took about three swipes with a straight razor, and half of my hair was laying in a soggy, soapy mess at my feet. And then I remembered, oh yeah, hair of the head, one of the 32 parts of the body. And in an instant, in a split second, it was like all the memories of the hassles I'd had with my hair over 35 years came into view. You know, in a split second. It didn't like I had to think about it. It was all there. Too long, too short, too oily, wrong color, too straight, too this. Shampoo that don't work, expensive haircuts, and innumerable bad hair days. And they all just kind of popped into my mind, and I realized, my hair has been a hassle. You know, and I spent, you know, how much time today do you spend in front of the mirror kind of making sure it's just right? <laughs> it's all a distraction. Now, there are other parts of the body you could work with, but hair of the head was the one that I was assigned. And it was a relief to let it go, to let go of that kind of passionate attachment to this as some expression of me or vehicle for my own happiness or misery, really. Well, that's one form of a super practice. There are others, uh, more graphic and less pleasant. (laughs) It's kind of hard, really, to do a super practice in a way that just arouses coolness and dispassion and doesn't arouse you know, either fear, disgust, or shame, or... If that's what's arising, then it's not a practice for you. And I'm not suggesting this is a practice for anyone in particular. But if you find yourself lost in sensual fantasies, look at the unpleasant aspect of it. Try See where the unpleasantness is in that fantasy as a way of dampening, as a way of cooling out uh, the desire, the lust, the indulgence, the fantasy.
At the time of the Buddha, there was one famous courtesan named Ambapali. And it's said that Ambapali was just this exquisitely beautiful woman who, in the time of the Buddha, a courtesan was something like a geisha, someone who was really trained in the arts of sensuality. And because of her, the town in which she lived just became famous and wealthy. She was such a, so skillful at what she did. She was also a devotee of the Buddha and would, on a few occasions, offered he and some of his monks meals, would come to listen to Dharma talks, and had created and prepared and offered to the Buddha uh, a park, a, a garden, for the Sangha to stay in and to practice in. And it's said that whenever she came, or when the Buddha knew that she was coming to listen to the Dharma talk in the evening, the Buddha would have to caution the monks and say, now monks, Ambapali is coming to the talk tonight. Guard your senses. Keep your eyes in your head. Don't look around. Don't get lost. Don't lose your head about her. You know? And so, hopefully they would guard their senses. But it said that at one point, as she got older, at one point she took up the practice of mindfulness and insight. And at one point when she saw the effects of aging on her body, it was the vehicle for her total liberation and awakening. Now, I've happened to notice when I look in the mirror and I see the effects of aging, which, you know, they're starting to show up. A little gray, a little wrinkles, a little this, a little that. <laughs> it's not yet been the vehicle of my awakening. <laughs> I'm working on it, but it can be if we don't resist it, if we see, if we can see truly that what is there in the unbeautiful aspect of the body and learn to let go, then it too can become a powerful practice for our awakening, support for our awakening. So we have reflecting on qualities of the Buddha, developing loving-kindness, developing the unbeautiful, the Yasuba aspect. And the fourth protective reflection or skillful reflection, skillful use of thought, is maranasati. And this is contemplation on death or reflection on death. When the bodhisattva was a prince living in the palace, Prince Siddhartha, he was lost in his world of sensual indulgence. But there was occasion when he left the palace and he went out into the village and he saw deeply, insightfully really, an elderly person, a sick person, and a corpse. And when he saw the corpse, or when he saw these three conditions of life, and he understood that this is the condition that all beings face, or that all beings live with, it shook him out of his kind of being lost in just sensual indulgence. It just, but it took something as dramatic as a corpse and understanding the fact of death to break the hold of his 
sensual indulgence. And so I think in every religious tradition, contemplating death is a skillful spiritual practice. And it's skillful because it, in some ways, we know about death. We know that everybody, everything, all beings, all plants die. But it seems like it's out there somewhere. We haven't really brought it in to our own heart. Not all. Some of us have. But often we go through life just kind of keeping one step ahead or keeping it back there, somewhere where we don't look at it, we don't acknowledge it, we don't, we don't allow it in very close. You know, and and we, we kind of hustle through life hoping to get everything done before it catches us. And this practice is really bringing the fact of death close, bringing it right up close, taking a look, getting intimately familiar with the fact of death. And traditionally, the reflection or Maranasati reflection involves reflecting on three things. The first is life is uncertain. Death is certain. And just kind of holding that thought in mind or just allowing that thought to come into the mind. We don't know what life is going to bring. But we do know that at the end of this life is death. We know that. And just, it is uncertain what we'll experience between now and then. But it is certain that we will experience death. The second reflection is to acknowledge, really, to ourselves that how long we will live is unknown. We might think that we're going to live to be 80. We might have good family genes. We might eat organic food, take the right vitamins, get our aerobic exercise, sit at least an hour a day, and there's no guarantee, really, that any of us is going to be in this room tomorrow. And to let that fact in that we really don't know if we're going to be here. When we can let that in, it kind of quickens the heart and you get, you know, if any of us thought that this was the last night that we were going to have a chance to practice, we might practice differently than if we thought, seven more days, right? And so it's, it's allowing in this understanding as a way of supporting our practice, as a way of really mm, feeling the urgency to do in this life what we can to free ourselves from suffering, free ourselves from the entanglements that just don't lead anywhere. Life is uncertain, death is certain. The length of life, of my life, is unknown. And since everyone must die, and there's no possibility of avoiding it, I too will die. 
the third reflection. Since, since everyone dies, and there's no possibility of avoiding it, I too must die. And to allow that thought, that understanding, that fact in to our heart, to just bring it close, not to get morbid, not to get fearful, not to get anxious, but to just to acknowledge this is the way it is. And then to let the sense of concern, energy, urgency, support your practice. If in reflecting on death, you find yourself dwelling on morbid or, you know, uh, developing fear, really, or, or anxiety, then it's not the practice for you at that time. But if you can reflect on death and, and bring it close, let it come close, and see that it arouses a sense of, or concern for what's important, how should I be spending my time, what's the, how much can I extend myself in my practice, then this is skillful use of this kind of reflection. I read recently when, before Carlos Castaneda died, Carlos Castaneda wrote about his experiences with Don Juan. Before he died, there was a a writer who'd always wanted to meet him and had never been able to get in touch with him or never been able to make the appointment. But he got a call from a friend who said that if you'd like to meet Carlos Castaneda, he's going to be having dinner at a certain restaurant somewhere around here, San Rafael, I think. And uh, if you'd like to meet him, he's going to be having dinner on such a day, and you're invited to come. So this writer went, and there sitting around the table were half a dozen people. One of them who was introduced is Carlos Castaneda, you know, kind of a short, fat, bald fellow smoking a lot of cigarettes. And during the course of the evening, one of the women at the table was speaking to Carlos and said, you know, I'd really like to live a more spiritual life. I'd like to be more spiritual, but I just... I don't know quite what to do. And if you've read any of Carlos' books, you might think he would say, oh, go to the desert, find a, an odd fellow, take drugs, get high, you know, figure it out that way. But no, he said, if you want to live a spiritual life, every morning, before you get out of bed, reflect that everyone you meet today is going to die. Reflect on that. Everyone you meet today, everyone you see today, everyone you think about today is going to die. And if you do that every day, you will have a spiritual life soon. That was Carlos' instruction. Don Juan's instruction to Carlos was to consider death as an advisor. And he told Carlos, death is your eternal companion It is the hunter, and it's always to your left, at an arm's length. It's always been watching, and it always will, until the day it taps you. How can you feel so important when you know that your death is stalking you? 
The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you catch a glimpse of it or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The fact of your death is never pressed far enough. It's the only wise advisor that you have. And whenever you feel that everything is going wrong and you're about to be annihilated, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong. Nothing really matters outside of its touch. And your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. To ask death's advice is to drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to men and women that live their lives as if death will never tap them. Thoughts are not the enemy of our practice. If we let our thoughts run rampantly, they can make us miserable. But if we use our thoughts skillfully, reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha, developing loving-kindness, developing the unbeautiful uh, aspect, developing the perception of death or reflecting on death, then our thoughts can support our practice in times of difficulty, whatever difficulty you're facing, these reflections can protect your energy, protect your momentum, protect your aspiration, your commitment. Using these practices or developing these practices is skillful use of thought. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. The road to enlightenment is long and arduous, which is why I've spoken to you about these four protective reflections. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.